You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 12 through 17. We're continuing in this chapter, and the author has presented us from the beginning of this chapter, this metaphor, this analogy, understanding of running a race. Um, Now, I am not a runner. I know that probably shocks you, given my svelte physique here, but uh, I'm not a runner. Um, I figure I don't need to run unless somebody's chasing me or unless there's a really good deal on food somewhere. Um, But a lot of people love running, love running for exercise, love running just to get out and and to enjoy the outside. And and I've got several friends who love to run. I've got several friends whose kids have learned to run and are very good at it in their their respective uh, schools. And I was thinking through this week as this author is challenging us with this idea of running, this race that God has set before us. And I remembered I've heard a lot of my friends and I've heard a lot of their kids who are big into running talk about uh, sort of a new thing that's come up in the past few years, which are called running groups. Instead of running being a very isolated individual exercise, people are gathering together in groups, much like you might gather with a group to play golf or uh, to get a bunch of fishing buddies to go together or whatever the case may be. They're gathering together in groups and they run together. And I looked online at some of the websites that had to do with local running groups. And I want you to hear just a few of the things that they said about the, uh, the benefits of being engaged in a running group. Being part of a running group, you get lots of cheering and encouragement. When you run with other people, they inspire you to run faster and stronger. Group running increases the great sense of community. And the fourth one I thought was really interesting. You're less likely to skip a training session as there are people expecting you to show up. And I thought, just from these few quotes, like, what could the church learn from this? They talk about running in group, and the group encourages them, and the group cheers them on. And they talk about running in group, and they get inspired to run stronger and faster and harder because of the group around them. And and that last one, you're less likely to skip a session because there are people expecting you to show up overwhelmingly the numbers. I've talked to pastors. I've talked to denominational leaders. I've seen surveys and stories and things online. Overwhelmingly the numbers of church, as far as church attendance goes, as we've gone out of these last couple years, overwhelmingly most churches have been in decline. Maybe they've been in a plateau. Maybe they've reached the same amount of people they were pre-COVID, but most of them have been in decline. But the small percentage that's seen growth And the small percentage that has actually seen increase on Sunday mornings in their attendance all have one thing in common. And that is within that church community, there were strong ties to small groups within that community. A Sunday school, a home group, a a specific uh, small group, maybe like a married couple's class or something like that. In other words, there were smaller groups within the community, not to be divisive, not to fraction people out, not to make clicks, but there were smaller groups where through these last couple years, those groups have been cheering each other on. Those groups have been encouraging. Those groups have been inspiring. Those groups have been moving people to run the race better. And as such, 
something like Sunday morning attendance becomes important because they know that there are people in those groups that are expecting them to be there, to not miss, if you will, a training session. And so as the author talks through chapter 12 about this running, I just want us to understand, today the message is going to be how we run the race together. And hopefully you know, hopefully you've been taught, hopefully you understand this Christian life is not meant to be an individualistic, isolationist thing. And we'll talk more about that as we get through it this morning. But let's, let's begin with the first two verses, Rome, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. He states this, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. From this first two verses we get this understanding that we're to run with the wounded. Now it it may seem strange that that's the phrase that I picked for these first two verses, run with the wounded. It probably seems weird to you to think about that I run with somebody who's wounded Because typically our first response when somebody's wounded is to stop and provide care for them. And certainly that's something we need to be doing. But also we stop and we provide care and then we encourage them to get up and move along. If you've ever been with that child who's learning to ride that bike for the first time without training wheels and they fall off and that knee gets scratched or that elbow gets cut or whatever the case may be and you pick that child up, you tend to the wound, you clean it, you put a band-aid on it, you don't say at that point, okay, well listen, you don't ever, ever have to get on the bike again. You say to that child, all right, we've tended to you, now let's ride. Let's ride. And so we want to run with the wounded. We want to pick up those who are described here, again in these verses, in this way. Drooping hands, weak knees, making straight paths for your feet so that what's lame may not be put out of joint. He's talking about wounded individuals here within the community of these Jewish Christians. And it applies for us today. Now what's interesting here is that whole descriptive piece there. The drooping hands, the weak knees, the making straight the paths. All come from Old Testament pictures. In Isaiah chapter 35 beginning verse 1. This is what Isaiah writes about this promise that Israel who would, had been in exile, who had been uh, essentially lost, if you will, that Israel was going to return to the glory that God had for them. And here's what Isaiah says, Isaiah 35, beginning verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, And they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And then listen to this. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Strengthen the weak hands. Strengthen the weak knees, the drooping hands. In Proverbs 4, 25 through 27, this is where the author here in Hebrews pulls from for the idea of the feet and the straight path. Let your eyes look directly forward. Let your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left, but turn your foot away from evil. I mean, it makes sense that this author writing to 
people who had formerly grown up within the concepts and the traditions and the history of Judaism and who are now embracing Christ and all the things that are coming with it, but who are also embracing difficulties, who are also embracing trials and tribulations by turning to Jesus, it makes sense that he would pull back and and pull from some of their older teachings from Isaiah and Proverbs and even as we'll see in just a moment, even from Deuteronomy. To remind them that what was true for Israel then is true for them now. And again, in light of last week, he's talking about this issue of discipline and this issue of even being disciplined by the Lord even, whether the Lord is ordaining it or allowing it or whatever the case may be. And he's saying, therefore, in light of that, in light of understanding that God's letting you go through what you're going through because he's your father, And because it declares that you are actually sons and daughters of his. In light of that, lift these things up. Make straight this path for the struggling. When we go hiking as a family, and oftentimes if we get to spaces, particularly for Gabriel and Kiki, where uh, the the path is maybe a little rocky or maybe there's mud or something along those lines, uh, as leading them in that way, I always make sure to say to them, now you're going to go here, and then you're going to step to the left, and then you're going to go this way, and then you're going to always make sure, because they're not yet ready for that path. They've not been on that path before. And they need to have that straight path made in that way before them. It's the same kind of thing that he's really uh, translating to us today. And it says there again in verse 12, Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. Some of your translations may say thee instead of your. But I want you to know it means the same thing. And here's why it means the same thing. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Paul's writing there in the fullness of 1 Corinthians 12 that the church is one body, that when one part of the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers, that when one part of the body is to be joyful, the rest of the body is to be joyful, that when one part of the body is not sure it serves a purpose, the rest of the body is to say to that part of the body, yes, you do serve a purpose, and here's where we need you. And so he paints the picture, Paul does in 1 Corinthians, that we are all one body. So whether your translation says lift the hands or lift your hands, the intent is the same. If we are truly thinking of of each other as part of one body, if we're truly thinking of each other as part of one community, what we recognize is what I do for you, I do for me. If I strengthen your hands or your knees, if I lift your hands that are drooping, I'm really lifting mine. When you lift my hands and when you strengthen my knees and when you make a straight path for me, you're really doing those things for you because what affects one piece of the body affects all of the body. And so we are to do those things as part of community. And at the end of verse 13, he says it this way. He says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You ever had something dislocated? It hurts. And not only does it hurt, but it makes whatever you dislocated not work the way it's supposed to. And this phrasing of being put out of joint is that idea that that sometimes we get dislocated. Sometimes we get so wounded to the point that we're not working the way that we're supposed to. And he says, don't do this, or he says to, to watch out for this so that we're not 
further dislocated. We're not further put out of joint, but rather that we are healed within the sense of the community, within the sense of the body of Christ. If we're not helping others to heal, we're hurting others. Let me, let me just say that one again. If we're not helping others to heal, we're hurting others. And so we run. We run and we run with the wounded. Secondly, we run with each other in mind. Look at verse 14. He follows that up by saying this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're challenged to remember our role in healing our role in running with the wounded, our role in lifting up hands and strengthening knees and making a pathway straight for others, and with two points of focus. The first one he says is, strive for peace with everyone. Now, I think typically, sometimes when we see the word everyone in the scriptures, it kind of means everyone, like everybody around you. But I believe here the intent is that he's specifically talking about striving for peace within the Christian body. And we don't do that very well sometimes. Several years ago, back in the early 2000s, I believe it was, there was actually a book written by a lay leader in a church, not, a, not an ordained pastor, not a paid minister, just someone who served in his church. And he had, he had observed for decades, as he observed in, in his church and churches around him and friends and discussions that he had, and he wrote this book, and the title of it was, Why Do Christians Shoot Their Wounded? like you would a, a wounded horse, put it out of its misery. And he talked about the lack of compassion that often exists for, with people who have anxiety, with people who are in depressive states, with people who are in emotional situations, and on and on and on, that oftentimes within the church there's very little compassion. And that's a shame because compassion is what marked Jesus. In Matthew's gospel it says he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. He didn't see the crowds and go, oh, they're getting what they deserve. He didn't see the crowds and go, here's the top ten list of the sins you guys are doing. He saw the crowds and he had compassion. Because he knew they were lost like sheep without a shepherd. We need within our Christian community this compassion that we strive for peace with one another. They, within this community that, that the author is writing to, I would guess emotions and depression and anxiety probably ran pretty high in their, in their circle. Why is God allowing this? What did we do wrong? Should we just go back to the old way of doing things, the, the way we were comfortable, what we knew? And the Holman Commentary speaks this of, of their situation. He says, Widespread trials often destroy a sense of community. And produce an attitude of looking out for number one. Let me read that piece again for you too. Widespread trials often destroy a sense of community and produce an attitude of looking out for number one. There can be no looking out for number one within the body of Christ. There can be no refusing to run with the wounded and striving for peace and doing the hard work of restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness and on and on and on. That cannot happen in the body of Christ because the scripture does not allow for that to happen. 
And the reality is oftentimes when we're in the midst of these trials, even if it's the discipline of the Lord, as was referenced last week, when we're in the midst of those, we tend to want to kind of circle that individual wagon and just look out for ourselves. But what happens is we do that because we're not at peace with ourselves. And you can guarantee if you're not at peace with yourself, you're not going to be at peace with anybody else. If you don't have that, what the author called last week, that peaceable righteousness in your life, I guarantee you won't be at peace with others. It says, strive for that peace in the second part there in verse 14, and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness here just references back to that big churchy word called sanctification, which is just simply this, you and I being made more like Jesus every day we're alive. It's the old adage that I've used multiple, multiple times in these last four plus years. Salvation is not a finish line. It is a starting line. And God makes us holy through faith, through grace. He makes us like Christ. We achieve that holy position in Jesus. And then we are called upon through the remainder of the scriptures and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to pursue holiness, to progress in holiness, to progress in this big word called sanctification. And that's what the author is stating here. We strive for peace and we strive for holiness. But look at how he says it. He doesn't put it in an individualistic piece. Strive for the holiness without no one, without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, he's beginning here in this section to begin to put responsibility on you and me for everybody else. Strive for peace with everyone and the holiness essentially that everyone needs. We, we've made Christianity a very individualistic thing. And, and hear me on this. It is right and proper theology to say, do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? That is 100% right. It is equally 100% right to say we receive that salvation in Jesus within the context and the frame of community, of a body, not of an isolated individualistic peace we strive not only for individual holiness but we strive for community holiness so we run with the wounded and we also run here in this last point with responsibility for others look at verses 13 or excuse me 15 through 17 see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled or unclean that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He says, see to it. This is a, this is a command of responsibility to the church. See to it. it. It's this word that is the verb form of a word that's found in the New Testament that is often translated either overseer or bishop. Sometimes also translated elder. And it's the verb form, see to it. And he's giving this, this admonition, this challenge, not to a specific group of people within the church here, but to all of the church. In Acts 20, 28, for example, 
Luke records, pay careful attention to yourselves and the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, and he's writing to him about how to lead that church and how to set up leadership within that church. And he says in 1 Timothy 3, 1, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, and then goes on to talk about what the qualifications of an overseer should be. So in these different places in the New Testament, we have this noun used, this position used, that there are overseers of the church. But here in Hebrews 12, he uses the verb form of that that translates see to it. And he's speaking that to everybody in the church. Are you catching this? He's putting the responsibility of the spiritual progression of the church on everyone. Not just on the paid staff. Not just on whoever your leaders are or however they're picked or chosen or how they're defined. He's putting it on everyone within the church that it is their responsibility to see to it or to oversee the life within this church. And what are they to oversee or what are they to see to? He tells us two things. One the first one is that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It would be easy here if, it, if he just meant that fails to get saved. But as we've gone through Hebrews, we've talked many, many times about the reality that this letter is written to brothers and sisters in Christ. It's written to people who are saved. So what does it mean to obtain, fail to obtain, or some translations say fall short of the grace of God? The idea here is that they don't have any grace, or that they're unsaved, because they're already called brothers in Christ. This obtaining, this falling short has to do with practical, daily experience of grace. Meaning, you can't live in peace or strive for peace with everyone. You can't strive for holiness unless we are daily living in the power of the grace of God that he has gifted us. Grace is not a one-time thing. Grace is given to us over and over and over. Peter described it this way in his letter of 2 Peter 1 and 2 in his introduction. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and by, of Jesus our Lord. And so the author is saying, see to it, be an overseer, take responsibility of this reality that no one in your community fails to walk daily in grace. And then he says a second thing that does take us a different direction. He also says, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by many, it becomes, they become defiled. Again, he quotes from an Old Testament passage. And reading this Old Testament passage helps us to see what he has in store here. From Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 and 19. This is when Moses is renewing the covenant of the, of the Lord with the people. And he says this, Deuteronomy 29, 18 and 19. Beware lest among you be a man or woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. 
This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. There's this shift here that takes place in this verse in Hebrews. Where he, the first piece is that we're to see to it that no one who is saved fails to obtain daily, to walk daily in the grace of God. But then there's the shift to say, also make sure that there are none in your community who declare themselves to be Christians, but really are Christian in name only. Reading the Deuteronomy passage helps us to see that because the Deuteronomy passage is, Beware lest there be any among you in the tribe of Israel who has heard the words, who has even yielded to, is maybe even as much as they would have done back then, agreed with the words, but walks around privately saying, But I'm going to be okay even though I'm walking in sin. He says, be careful of that. See to it. Oversee that. Because this person essentially is a person who is a Christian, to borrow a phrase from our days today, a Christian in name only. This is a person who's rebellious. This is a person who's deliberately walking in rebellion. This is a, a person who's experienced a very superficial, shallow sort of understanding of who Jesus is. Now, some here talk about this bitterness, the root of bitterness springing up. And apply it in this way, that among the saved, there should be no bitterness. And I would agree with that completely. Bitterness among the saved is the devil's playground. And bitterness among the saved causes all kinds of problems. But here, the specific intent, knowing what we know from Deuteronomy, knowing what we see here in just a moment by using Esau as the example, the intent here is that this root of bitterness that springs up is a person who really has not even ever been saved. They may declare they have been. They may have done whatever the first century equivalent was of walking in awe and getting baptized. But from that day forward, they have walked in the stubborn rebelliousness of their heart. And they have said, as the man in Deuteronomy says, I will be okay. No, no, you will not. You will not because look at what he says in verses 16 and 17 as we begin to close. He makes the comparison of Esau, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single Meal. That phrase really is just to describe that Esau went after the things of the world more so than he went after the things of God. Esau wanted his spiritual journey to be on his terms, not on God's terms. He wanted his position within the family and his position within the community and within the body of Israel to be on his terms and not on God's terms. And so he, he yielded that just for something as simple as a bowl of soup. You might say, well, that's not a big deal, right? But it is a big deal because look at what the author says in verse 17. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He's making this comparison about this root of bitterness springing up and by it many becoming defiled. And he's making this statement for any that might be within that community then or within our community today to say, understand this. You might fool most of the people around you most of the time. But when it comes down to the end and you in tears desire to repent and desire to take it back and desire to take all your choices back, repentance is not going to be there. Because you've failed to grasp it when you should. And the 
scary thing about this is when we look at what he says about Esau and we look at what he says about this root of bitterness, look at that phrase that's right at the end of verse 15, kind of sandwiched in between them. By it, by that person, by that root of bitterness, many become defiled. Esau would give birth to a land and a nation called Edom who were forever in rebellion to God. He would, he would go on to, to found a group of people that forever thumbed their nose in sinful behavior against God. And when that root of bitterness springs up within a church, many become defiled by it. Because many begin to observe, oh, well, they, they, they're, they're Christian and they're doing this. It must be okay for me to do that. They're Christian and they're saying this. It must be okay for me to do that. And we all must be on our guard individually. And we all must be on our guard collectively with one another. To run. But to run in such a way that we're pursuing this holiness. We're pursuing this sanctification. And we're pursuing this, this church that an outside world sees. And they see a church that loves compassion and loves being at peace with one another and loves restoration, but also says there are some lines we cannot cross and will not cross. Because ultimately, we are searching and seeking God's way in our life. By it, many will become defiled. What does it mean to run together? I'm going to sum it up in these ways. One, we run by bringing others along with us and encouraging them as we go. You and I are not here to just be solitary, individualistic Christians and just make our way to the end. We are here to run with the wounded. We are here to care for them and then encourage them and move them along. We run by striving for peace and by daily holiness and progression. To go back to those running groups that I mentioned at the beginning, if one runner in the group doesn't train, the group has to slow down for that person. And in the body of Christ, when one or two or 12 or 15 don't train, don't discipline, don't do the work they need to do to see this progression of sanctification, the group has to slow down for them. In this, there's both individual and community responsibility among us. And then finally, we run with that responsibility. You are not only responsible for your own individual holiness, for we have been told, see to it, oversee. The faith, the holiness, the sanctification, the running of those who are around us as well. Oh, that we would run and run well together to the glory of God. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.